If you'll take your Bible, if you haven't already, and please open up to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're going to be talking about Jesus again today. Every week we go to church. What do we do? Uh, We talk about Jesus. I hope you say that about Cornerstone for sure. Uh, If someone says uh, that church talks about uh, Jesus a lot, uh, good, right? May May it always be. And to do that right now, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke again. And specifically, I want us to look at Luke chapter 2, which is part, you remember, of Luke's introduction to his gospel. So this gospel is, is very structured, and he warned us about that, actually, at the beginning. He said he's writing an orderly account. This is not like free-form writing or stream of consciousness or something. It's orderly. Every story is carefully chosen, carefully placed. He's told us how he's writing, and he's told us why he's writing as well, Luke. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that we might be certain. You remember, he says, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And after that, he told us what he wants us to be certain about, how he's writing, why he's writing, what he's writing about in this introduction, chapter one. He's presented his, his thesis, you might say, about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. I always think it's important to understand that Luke is making an argument. He's not disinterested, saying kind of random things. He wants you to believe something about Jesus. And so as we're working our way through these stories in the Gospel of Luke, Do you believe what Luke says about Jesus? That's basically going to be our application week after week. And to make clear what we're supposed to believe, he tells a couple stories about Jesus that give us a picture of why he is so significant. And then he shares a couple of songs that give an explanation of what Jesus was coming to do. And you remember, I keep saying, it is big, it is big, It is big. Who is Luke claiming that Jesus is? He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises about how God is going to fix the world. He is the seed that was promised back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He is God. He is Savior. He is Lord. He is Redeemer. He is King. That is who he is. And what is Luke saying that Jesus came to do? This is, you remember where Luke brings in Mary to sing a song, and then after her, Zechariah, to give his explanation. And their explanation is different than uh, maybe we would expect, because Mary is clearly talking about this reversal for the nation of Israel, uh, a complete reversal of how it was for them on the social, economic, and political level. And Zechariah backs her up, and he expands it even. And he talks about the international, worldwide implications of what God is going to do for them through Jesus. That is Luke's thesis, chapter 1. Jesus is the one, the whole Bible, and all of history has been getting us ready for, because Jesus is the one who is going to change the world, the entire world, at every level. Now the question is how? That is who, 
That is what, now how? How is he going to do that? So I heard someone say it like this. Chapter one, thesis. This is what I'm saying about Jesus. Chapter two, explanation. This is a glimpse in chapter two and really all the chapters that follow. Luke is explaining how God is going to accomplish all this through Jesus. And Luke starts first with the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. The circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth are a glimpse, our first glimpse, how God is going to accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish through Jesus. We've had the announcements, the explanation, and now God is really starting to act, verses 1 through 7. And yet you're going to see at first, it's pretty dark, actually. Uh, Luke doesn't hold back. As he describes the circumstances, he begins with an uncaring, powerful, international leader. In those days, verse 1, chapter 2, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And it's like Luke is zooming out here because he's been focused in on Judea. And now he's zooming out. Caesar Augustus is obviously an international political figure. And so you remember maybe that Luke's already given us a glimpse of local political leaders and what is happening in Judea back in chapter 1, verse 5, as he was describing John the Baptist's birth announcement. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And you see how that kind of sounds like what we just read. In those days, in the days. And it's pretty clear as you read chapters 1 and 2 that Luke is contrasting John the Baptist with Jesus. And lots of people have noticed that. that. That's there, part of Luke's intention. And it's not like they're in competition, obviously. But instead, it's like Luke is telling these stories in such a way to help us compare and contrast. So we can see John the Baptist is important, really important. But Jesus is even more important. And Luke is such a literary strategist. He includes certain things, certain places for such specific reasons so often that it wouldn't be surprising to me if that's why he included this detail about John the Baptist's birth announcement taking place in the days of Herod. Because when he talks about Jesus's birth, he actually goes even bigger. Chapter two, verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And so obviously, if you know John the Baptist, you know that his life and ministry were pretty tightly connected to Herod. You think John the Baptist, you think Herod, which is big because Herod was important. But look, Jesus is even more significant. If you think about John's ministry in the context of Herod, Luke is saying you need to think about Jesus being born in the context of Caesar. And if you know a little bit about Caesar, you know it's like Luke saying, I'm not playing with these claims that I'm making about Jesus because we're talking about a Roman emperor here, Caesar, Caesar Augustus. And so Herod was a king, but not like a king king. He was a, a client king in, in, in that someone had to give him this role. He was nothing compared to Caesar and especially this Caesar. Luke is comparing Jesus to the Caesar. This is Caesar Augustus, Gaius Octavius, his given name, and then Gaius Julius Caesar later, but he's called Octavian 
from the point that he became emperor. Those are his other names. And he was actually the first Roman emperor, which is a big deal. Apparently one of the, the greatest politicians of all time. I heard someone say uh, one time, Boris Johnson, actually the prime minister of England, said if you brought 11 of history's greatest politicians together, you would have Augustus as your midfield playmaker, captain of the 11. He's thinking soccer, but his point is that he would be the one who was in charge because when it came to politics, he was absolutely brilliant. I know we usually think of Roman Caesars as just terrible, crazy usually, probably because of Nero and maybe because of that movie Gladiator as well, but Augustus was different, at least to a certain extent. There was plenty that was terrible about him, for sure. He had lots of blood on his hands. But he wasn't just random crazy. He was uh, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, if you know the history. And that name is famous, uh, probably because of the Shakespeare play, uh, for most of us. But about 100 years before Jesus, Rome uh, was having lots of wars, lots of conflict, lots of strife. I heard someone say that you could hardly do better than being a Roman citizen in uh, the second century AD, but that was definitely not true leading up to Jesus. There were uh, so many wars, and because Julius was a great warrior, he won a number of really important battles, and so he became very important to Rome. But Rome at that point was a republic. It didn't have kings or emperors or anything like that, but Julius Caesar somehow maneuvered himself all the way up, probably because he was such a great general, to the point where he was able to make himself dictator for life, which I'm not really sure how that's different than a king, actually. And I guess many of the other Roman political elite weren't sure either, because after a while they assassinated him on uh, the Ides of March, the 15th of March. They lured him into that place uh, where they met as senators because the bodyguards weren't allowed there, and they gathered around him, about 60 of them, and they stabbed him to death, which they thought would make all of Rome happy, but didn't, because the common people were behind Julius Caesar, for the most part, and so the people who assassinated him were kind of in trouble, because they didn't have a big plan uh, for what came after they killed Julius. And so there was kind of a leadership vacuum. And even though Octavius, uh, this Caesar at the beginning of Luke chapter 2, was only in his late teens at the time uh, Julius Caesar was killed. He was uh, maybe 17 or 19, I've heard both. But he hears somehow, and he comes back to Rome uh, from Albania, actually. Uh, and I didn't realize this uh, when I was in Albania a few years ago. Uh, they took me to the place where Caesar Augustus was uh, when he heard about Julius Caesar being assassinated. And it just kind of looked like a bunch of rubble to me. And uh, I heard them say some things, but now I know it was really significant where I was. Uh, I understood why they took me there now. But anyway, he comes back to Rome and he finds out that Julius Caesar had adopted him. This was part of Caesar's will. He was uh, the great nephew of Julius Caesar, but at some point Caesar in his will adopted Gaius Octavius, and so he comes back and he finds out that Julius has basically left everything to him. And he becomes part of this triumvirate with uh, someone named Mark Antony and another person named Lepidus who take over the empire, and eventually he is able to push Lepidus out, and then there's some sort of soap opera type history with uh, 
Octavian, Mark Antony, and someone named Cleopatra. But finally, uh, 17 years later, after all kinds of war and strife and conflict and jostling for power, by 27 BC, Octavian's defeated everyone else. And he takes upon himself, at that point, the title Augustus, Augustus Caesar, which means worthy of honor, majestic or exalted one. It's also obviously where we get the month August from. But he becomes the first emperor of Rome, and he accomplishes some really amazing things, actually. So he was ruthless climbing to power, definitely. He, he executed the son of Caesar with Cleopatra, of Julius Caesar with Cleopatra, when he was just a teenager. He tried to wipe Mark Antony out of the history books. Obviously, he didn't end up doing that, but he tried. But once he gained power, he focused on making Rome uh, successful. And under his 40-plus year reign, he basically brought order out of chaos. That's how one scholar puts it. In fact, this one man makes a list of what Caesar Augustus did for Rome. He says he restored confidence in the government, he replenished the territory, he ran the public works with efficiency, he promoted peace and prosperity. When the economy tanked, Caesar Augustus would pay for free grain out of his own pocket and feed the empire. He erected public buildings at his own expense, he reformed taxes to make them more fair. It was said that Augustus found Rome brick and left it marble. What he left behind lasted hundreds of years. Caesar Augustus was a huge deal. And I, I don't know if that particular scholar worked for a Caesar Augustus propaganda machine, but he had one, Caesar Augustus. Like I said, he was a great politician. So if you go to the British Museum in London, you'll see a bronze statue of uh, Caesar Augustus's head <laughs> that they found somewhere in Sudan. And you might even know what it looks like. I'm not a big... Uh, Roman statue guy myself, but it's so famous that I knew it. And actually, he had thousands and thousands of these statues sent over the empire. We have, uh, someone has said, surviving today, over 250 images of Augustus, which come from all over the empire. And you know, they all look pretty much the same. Him uh, strong, him handsome, him young, because that was the image that he wanted to project. And one of the reasons he did that was because obviously it wasn't easy keeping a worldwide empire in check. And one of the ways he kept the empire in check was through a kind of propaganda machine that even took religious overtones. And now we're kind of getting to the point. It, it, it becomes really a religious kind of propaganda. And Julius Caesar did this as well. He claimed that he was a god. And Augustus being his son, it's not surprising that he called himself, or at least he let himself be called, the son of God. In fact, it's a little bit ironic here in Luke, uh, Luke bringing up Caesar Augustus in chapter 2, after the first chapter, where he's making all these claims about Jesus being God, Lord, Savior, Redeemer, son of God, because those were all claims people at the time would have been making about Caesar Augustus. Like, listen to this one inscription they found somewhere near the Nile about Caesar Augustus. It says, the emperor, ruler of oceans and continents, the divine father among men, who bears the same name as his heavenly father, liberator, the marvelous star of the Greek world, shining with the brilliance of the great heavenly savior. This is how they were promoting 
Caesar Augustus. And he, he even had a kind of gospel that they were preaching about him as well. And that's the word they used. I, I remember I, finding it surprising the first time I uh, found out that the word gospel wasn't just a biblical word. It was a secular word as well. And they used this word gospel to describe the good news of what Caesar Augustus had accomplished. Maybe you've heard of the Pax Romana, and that means Roman peace. And it was a term that they made up during Augustus's rule, because like I was saying, before Augustus, there was so much war. And after Augustus became emperor, he was able to quiet the world down, or at least quiet it down for the Romans. And so he actually had poets and he had historians working for him to tell the story of how Caesar Augustus enabled the world to enter into a new era of peace and prosperity and hope. In fact, he would have said he brought peace to the world. Caesar Augustus, would, he would have shared the gospel that he brought peace to the world. And so someone writes, this message was carved in stones on monuments in inscriptions around the known world. Good news. We have an emperor. Justice, peace, security, and prosperity are ours forever. The son of God has become the king of the world. It was like, and you can even hear it in that inscription, a gospel, the gospel of Caesar. This word, good news or gospel, was used as propaganda to announce the birth or ascension of the emperor. Just listen to this one announcement they made about him. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the world the beginning of good news concerning him, who being sent to us and our descendants as a savior has put an end to all things and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled the hopes of earlier times. And I, I don't know how much of that's important for you to know about the Roman Empire, really, but I guess I think it helps to understand when you hear Caesar Augustus, we're talking about the most powerful man in the world at that point. Someone who people were preaching gospels about. And Luke is wanting you to make this connection between Jesus and Caesar, because first of all, that's the world into which Jesus was born. It was a world that already would have said that it had a king, a savior, a lord, Augustus. Those were the kinds of things that people were saying about him. And to be honest, it kind of looked like it at that moment in time. That, that's the thing. I mean, if you were going to make a comparison between Jesus and Caesar, it looked like Caesar was king. Verse 1, again, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each up to his own town. And you can feel there even how Luke is highlighting Caesar's almost absolute power. All the world and all went to be registered. Caesar makes a decree that all the world should be registered, and so all the world goes to be registered. They had to do what he said, which isn't something that people would want to do, especially not in Israel. A little historical context again. Because obviously Rome loved Caesar Augustus, as I was saying, but not everyone did. Like, for example, the Jewish people would not have loved 
Caesar Augustus. For one thing, because the way that he brought this prosperity to Rome was through exploiting the countries that Rome conquered, like Israel. This is how they lived the high life back in Rome. They conquered other countries and took their money. Uh, they had this process, actually. When Rome first defeated a nation, they would treat them brutally in order to force them to submit. Uh, their armies would come in, and they would often burn towns, uh, de absolutely destroy places. Other times, they would crucify traitors or enslave the population. For example, when uh, one Roman general conquered a part of Galilee, a historian, Josephus, said he made slaves of some 30,000 men. 30,000. And there's another story of a, another Roman general who crucified 2,000 rebels all at once. And they did that, of course, because once they got them to submit, afraid like that, they could get their taxes. And taxes were a way to fund Caesar. And, and Romans, Romans didn't like being taxed themselves. Uh, Caesar knew it was better to get that money from somewhere else, and getting it from somewhere else was also a way that they could demean the people they had conquered, obviously. It was like soldiers moving into your house and then getting rich by charging you rent, which was a problem for the Israelites, having to pay taxes like that to, to Rome, but wasn't really even the main problem, to be honest. There was something more to all of this, because you remember, this is the promised land that we're talking about. So this is not just about sending money to Rome, Caesar conquering Israel and issuing these decrees in Israel. This is about God having given this land to them. This was God's land. And this is a big part of what the Old Testament is about, right? The Old Testament, you could say, is about God giving this land to Israel. And then Israel disobeying God and getting kicked out of the land and sent into exile. And then God raising up prophets who promised them that he would rescue them from exile, bring them back to the land, and make everything better. And then them getting back to the land, God keeping that promise, and yet it not getting much better at all. <laughs> Obviously, uh, because here in Luke, Jesus' people were living in their own country again, back from exile, but dominated by a foreign power. So it was kind of like they were out of exile, but still in a kind of exile. And that's important. Jesus is born into exile, into a world in which a Roman emperor was claiming to be the son of God and where it kind of looked like he was. Because he's dictating what happens in God's land for his own prophet. They're living back in Israel, but they're weak and powerless. And one big illustration of the kind of power that Rome had over Israel was the fact that when Augustus wanted to, he could force them to comply with this census, or as we read in our Bibles, uh, registration, which of course was primarily for the purpose of taxation. This decree to be registered was a census. You had to go back to where your ancestors were from so Rome could know who and how many they could tax. And you see here, if you look down, Luke calls it the first census, which implies what? That there was a, a second. And I think there was a second census, actually. But you should probably know verses 1 and 2 are, uh, this is probably the most difficult historical issue in the Gospel of Luke, because there's some controversy about this particular census. Because Luke brings up Quirinius here, uh, being governor of Syria, and he seems eager to do that. He doesn't have to do that. Like, he, he does it for a, a specific purpose. 
And that is something that we can date, like, um, pretty easily, because Josephus, who was another Jewish historian, says that was around 6 or 7 AD. And we're trusting Josephus, apparently. And so some scholars would say that those dates seem to be a little off. Uh, when Jesus would have been born uh, was more like 4 or 5 BC. And we know that because one Herod, king of Judea, died. But of course, there's solution. Uh, solutions. That's also something you should know. There's always solutions. Like one option is the fact that a census would have taken time. Uh, I mean, it even takes time in America to do a, a census, and they didn't have cell phones or anything. Everything just had to take so much time, uh, especially when you're moving people all over the place back where they were born to count them. So this could have been a census that started before Quirinius became governor and then was finally completed when he was governor. Or, you know, obviously, Quirinius could have been governor twice. Or, and I think this is probably the solution, the word first could also be translated before. That's a legit translation. So it could be, this is the particular census that took place before Quirinius became governor, because Rome totally did more than one census in other places. But you know, it's not hard for me to trust Luke anyway, because he lives so much closer to the time and is so specific here. He could have been a lot more vague. And it's not hard for me to trust him over some scholars who have an agenda not to trust the Gospels living a, a couple thousand years later. That's my default position. And, and I think Luke brings up this census here, knowing it's the more uh, famous one, or he brings up the second census, actually saying that this one happened before that one because he's living close to the time. So people knew when Herod died and they're like, okay, a census, is he talking about the one with Quirinius? Because that happened around 6 AD and it's famous around the world because it made the Israelites so angry that there was a major revolt that had to be crushed. And so Luke's like, no, I'm talking about a registration that happened before Quirinius became governor. But really, anyway, whatever the answer is, all that detail shouldn't keep you from getting the point, which is that Luke's presented his thesis in chapter one, which is that Jesus was coming to be king of the world. This is big. And yet when we look at how he describes the historical circumstances into which Jesus was born, it's pretty dark. It starts with this uncaring international leader, this Caesar, who was claiming the very things about himself that chapter one claimed about Jesus. And then Luke shows him taking advantage of his power to exploit God's people. And yet, ultimately, why is this happening? This is key. It's, it's why I gave you all that historical data, actually, so you could feel this a little. Because why is this story here? What's he doing in chapter two, Luke? Remember what we said? This is how. He's beginning to explain how God is going to accomplish what he promised in chapter one, right? It's not like forgot, Luke forgot this is what he, he said. He knows. This uncaring Caesar exploiting God's people looks absolutely terrible, but what is really happening? Keep reading. God is orchestrating events to accomplish his purposes, specifically two things. First, Jesus being born where he's supposed to be born. This is verses four to seven. 
Let me start at the beginning. Luke writes, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all want to be registered, each to his own town, which looks like a demonstration of Caesar's power. People are saying, Caesar is Lord. You just gave me proof, Luke, he is Lord. Luke says, look beyond the surface. And you'll see there are a couple of ways that he highlights what is really going on. Verse 4, city of David, first way. Joseph also went out from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And why do you think Luke says here city of David? Because he could have just said Bethlehem, obviously. He doesn't give any extra details about Nazareth. But he highlights Bethlehem as being the city of David. And it's almost like the name Bethlehem is secondary there to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And it's not complicated why. Uh, you know the answer. Luke's told us Jesus was going to be given the throne of his father David in chapter 1. So that's part of the significance of Jesus. He is the one who's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant. And so here, chapter 2, as we look at the historical circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth, this terrible exploitation of God's people by this arrogant Roman emperor, what is this doing, actually? Is this some big obstacle to God accomplishing his plan? No, because in fact, you know what it does? It only ends up confirming what chapter 1 said about Jesus. Because Luke says, end of verse 4, the reason he had to go there was because his adopted father was of the house and lineage of David. So this Roman emperor's census is used in God's hands as proof that Jesus was the, the legitimate heir to the throne. You can just look back to where he was born. Why did he go to Bethlehem? It was because his family were descendants of David, which is good, but you know, we can dig a little deeper. Verse five with the words, Mary and the time came. Because verse five, Luke makes sure we know Joseph didn't go to Bethlehem alone. He went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And you know that uh, way of putting it, the time came uh, just doesn't capture the original so well for me uh, because the word is actually fulfilled. So it's more like the time was fulfilled for her to give birth. It's a word that Luke uses later for fulfillment of prophecy. That's why they just say the time came because it's not really a word you would use for giving birth. When, you were, when were you born? When the time was fulfilled for my mother to give birth, she gave birth. No, we don't say it like that. But Luke does because it's his way of saying that God was arranging world history so that Mary could give birth in Bethlehem. So here Caesar is doing his Caesar things. And the world thinks it's just another demonstration of Caesar's power. Caesar makes a decree that all the world should be registered and all the world goes to be registered. But what's really happening? What's really happening is Mary, this, this teenage girl, needs to give birth in Bethlehem. God needs to move her from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And why? Because the future Davidic king had to be born in Bethlehem. It looks like the world is a pawn in Caesar's plan, but Caesar is a pawn in God's plan. 
And you can read his plan back in Micah. Micah is an Old Testament prophet, and he's one of these prophets who has to explain the exile. And he says one reason for the exile is because the descendants of David got so bad that God's going to have to judge them. And so it's going to look like the Davidic dynasty is dead, like God killed it. But at some point in the future, Micah promises God is going to resurrect the Davidic dynasty. And you're going to know that he is resurrecting the Davidic dynasty because he's going to go back to where it all started with David and raise up this great future ruler king from Bethlehem to start all over again. And you know, I think Luke gives you even one more hint. That's what's going on in verse 7 when he says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. So, so city of David, the time was fulfilled, firstborn. Those are all important phrases because it's kind of funny that he describes Jesus as Mary's firstborn, isn't it? Since she wasn't married yet and he's told us she was a virgin, <laughs> what else would you expect Jesus to be besides her firstborn? So I don't think he adds that detail in in case we forgot, but it's probably, and I'll just say probably, maybe, a sideways glance to the way Paul uses the term firstborn to describe Jesus, because when Paul uses the term firstborn to describe Jesus, he's talking about his preeminence and authority. In other words, it's like Luke is saying, this is not just any son that was born to Mary in Bethlehem, this is the firstborn, this is the son that has the right to rule. So. God said in chapter 1 to Mary that he's going to give to Jesus the throne of his father David, and yet how is he accomplishing that in chapter 2? The actual historical circumstances look bad at first because here Caesar's using his power to exploit God's people, but that's so Jesus will be born where the promised Davidic king is supposed to be born first, and second, so that it will be clear that he is born into exile and shame. And if you want to know uh, why Jesus had to be born into exile and shame, you might read the prophecy about the virgin birth in the book of Isaiah. But this is the second result of what Caesar did. And it's also really important to Luke for you to notice. If you look at verse 7 again, she gave birth to her firstborn son and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And you can see how Luke's emphasizing there was no place for them. What's happening here? Because we hear in... And we probably think like um, Hilton or something, a hotel. And we've, we've seen this story before in Charlie Brown's Christmas, right? But that's not really how the word is being used here, in. Uh, it, it means guest room, actually. Um, there's another word for in. This is the word for guest room. So most houses would have had a guest room. Uh, one guest room, because in the ancient Near Eastern world, hospitality was really important. And so normally... If someone came, you would want to show them honor by giving them the guest room, especially uh, someone who was about to give birth. But here comes Mary, and there's no place for them there. Why? I guess we could try to figure it out, I suppose, but Luke doesn't tell us. Instead, what he wants us to focus on is that there's no room for them there, because I don't think this is actually about space. This is about honor. Here, Mary is pregnant, and, and she's not married. And so I think this isn't so much about, you know, her and Joseph, they get to Bethlehem a little late in the evening, and she's like, why did we leave so late? And, and No, and the hotel's full. No, I don't think that's what this is about. Instead, this is about people not honoring or respecting Mary or Joseph 
or Jesus. Because Luke wants us to see the way in which Jesus was born was just so shameful. And that's part of God's plan, actually, because this, remember, is how. How is God going to do all this great world-changing stuff through Jesus that he talked about in chapter 1? Chapter 2, Luke says, okay, you want to know how? Let's look at the historical circumstances, because this gives you a glimpse how. You've got an arrogant leader exploiting God's people, but it only results in Old Testament promises being fulfilled, even though he doesn't realize that's what he's doing. And the king being shamefully treated and overlooked by the very people who should have celebrated him because that's how God's going to accomplish his salvation. That's the paradigm, the, the plan, or at least that's a, a start to understanding how. Verses 1 to 7, the historical circumstances. But Luke doesn't end there, obviously. Verses 8 through 17. Second, he moves on and describes this amazing angelic announcement which gives us another important glimpse into how God's accomplishing what he said he would accomplish in chapter 1. Because he's shown us Jesus is born into exile, and he's given us hints that's part of God's plan. City of David, the time was fulfilled, firstborn. But I mean, how are we supposed to actually get the full significance of that? <laughs> Next step, shepherds. First step, Caesar. Second step, shepherds. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by, by night. And we've come a long way down now from Caesar, if you know what I'm saying. Because there's, really a, there's hardly a bigger contrast with Caesar than shepherds in terms of power, glory, and respect. I mean, we know King David was a shepherd, so that gives them some credit, I guess. But the fact that he was a shepherd was actually part of what made it such a surprise that he would be chosen to be king because being shepherd in Jesus's day was not a looked up to occupation at all. What do you want to be when you grow up? A shepherd? No, no, no. Come back. We'll talk again tomorrow. Never. Shepherds, as someone said, were outcasts. We tend to romanticize the shepherds, especially since there are so many good shepherds in the Bible, but they did not enjoy a very good reputation in Jesus's day. They were unable to keep the ceremonial law and so they were treated as unclean. They were also regarded as liars and thieves, which is why their testimony was not even admissible in a court of law. In other words, shepherds were despised. With the exception of lepers and maybe tax collectors as well, they were the lowest class of men in Israel. So look again, because the question is, how is God accomplishing this salvation through Jesus? And first we've seen, Luke's given us a glimpse He's using Roman power and cruelty and allowing Jesus to experience suffering and shame as a result. And then, second, we're seeing he brings up these ordinary men, these overlooked outcasts, and what happens? Verse 9, they see the glory of God. God reveals himself to ordinary men, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And you can understand them being afraid, right? Because here at one moment, they're just sitting out in the field staring at, at sheep. And I mean, they're not out there trying to change the world or something. They're probably just trying to stay awake. And yet in the very next moment, the whole world is turned upside down as they're seeing an angel of the Lord, probably Gabriel, and they're experiencing God's glory. And then verse 10, the angel speaks and he explains the significance of what's happening with Jesus to them. In other words, they get divine revelation. 
And this is so key because this is part of Luke's explanation, remember? Because obviously it's great we can say in verses 1 to 7 that these historical circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth are part of God's plan. But how do we know? We know we can be sure because we don't just have the historical circumstances. We also have divine revelation from God that confirms it. That is verses 8 through 16, the angelic announcement. And it's this angelic announcement, this divine revelation that God gives to these very ordinary men that completely changes the way we look at Jesus. Because what does the angel say? First off, he says not to be afraid because he's got good news. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. And that's the word gospel, which is the same word they were using for the birth of Caesar, right? And yet now the angel is using that word to describe the birth of Christ. You don't have to be afraid anymore. And Israel was afraid. They had to be afraid as they were living in exile under Roman domination. But the birth of Jesus is good news because it means they don't have to be afraid anymore. The opposite. The angel says, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Which is the angel doing what? As you're reading your Bible having devotions, what just happened there? You're like, ding, 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 ding. He's confirming everything he said in chapter 1. That is like a big amen. Because chapter 1 is all about what? People rejoicing because God is acting through Jesus to save Israel. And then chapter 2 begins, and it's like you're hit with a cold splash of reality as Caesar is exploiting Israel. And so here the angel comes, and he speaks to the shepherds, and he encourages them, nothing's changed. You don't have to be afraid. Jesus' birth is good news. Why? Because everything you were hoping Jesus would be is real. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord and city of David. David's a king. This is a place where kings are born. And Savior, Lord, those are all terms they were using for Caesar, remember? And Christ is the messianic king. It's, it's the word that Jesus rarely used of himself because it was so loaded. And yet how do we know this when he's born the way he was born? How do we know this is true? I, I love verse 12 because this is the twist. Because the angel reveals that the very thing that we thought was a symbol of Jesus' shame is actually now a sign that he is exactly who the angel was saying he was. Do you see that, verse 12? And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. In other words, how do you know you've really found the Savior, the Christ, the Lord? This special revelation from God to these ordinary men reveals that it's going to be the very thing you thought symbolized his shame, which demonstrates, proves that he actually is the promised one. Welcome to the whole gospel of Luke. <laughs> that's, that's like what this whole gospel is. We see this salvation that's promised in chapter 1, and yet then we see Jesus crucified. How are we supposed to think that he really is going to accomplish what God promised? We've got revelation. And that revelation shows us the very thing that makes it look like Jesus isn't the promised one is what proves he actually is the promised one. It's amazing. And the moment that he says that, we get confirmation, verse 33. 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, 
which you just have to stop and, and be amazed for a minute because we don't get like a multitude of heavenly hosts showing up very often in the Bible and, uh, and, and praising God. What are they doing here? They're approving of what God's done. And what are they saying? They're explaining the results of Christ's work, which is what? One, they're saying God is receiving glory, the maximum amount of glory in heaven. In fact, it's almost like they're giving us a trailer here of the end, a preview of what's going to happen through Jesus. All of heaven is going to celebrate God as a result of Christ's work. Glory to God in the highest. That's first. Second, earth is going to experience peace. The very thing that Caesar said he brought to the world, peace to the world. The angels say Jesus is going to bring to the world. And, and what's peace? What does he mean by peace? If you look back to chapter 1, Mary and Zechariah explained it. It is salvation being experienced in its fullest sense. Spiritual, physical, economic, social, a complete reversal of the curse. It is God making everything right again for the people that he's chosen. There are people who bring God pleasure and they're going to enjoy peace on earth. And then what happens next? In verses 1 to 7, we saw the historical circumstances. It looked impossible. An arrogant leader exploiting God's people. The result is Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled and Jesus is born into exile and shame. Then verses 8 and following, we hear this angelic announcement. These ordinary men experience a transforming sight of God's glory, and they're given special revelation that Jesus is the one the whole Bible has been getting us ready for because Jesus is the one who's going to change the world at every level, and that the very thing we thought might have meant he wasn't is the very thing that proves he really is. And then verse 15, they go. They act in response to this revelation. And what happens? When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. In other words, it happens exactly as the angels said it would happen. And they become missionaries, basically, verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And you notice, what word is different there, verse 17? If you look at verse 12, it's baby. If you look at verse 16, it's baby. Now verse 17, a child. You know where we saw that word before? Chapter 1, verse 54, he's helped his servant Israel. Chapter 1, verse 69, in the house of my servant David. It's that, it's that word, a servant, actually. And it's a big Old Testament word. And one of the most important places that it's used is in Isaiah. Isaiah's got this whole theology of the Messiah. And one of the words he uses for the Messiah is this one, servant. And so these shepherds are not just going around telling everyone about this baby. They're going around identifying this baby is that servant that was prophesied in Isaiah, which, of course, is like this amazing illustration of how we got to where we are today, like 2,000 years later. Because here's this Bible with all these statements about what God's going to do through Jesus as the Messiah, promising this big salvation. And here are these Jewish people like Mary and Zechariah who are just so sure God's going to do it through Jesus. And yet here's Jesus. And he doesn't look the way we expect. He's announced as the Messiah, and yet he's born into suffering and shame. 
And yet if we look closely enough, we can see that suffering and shame fit into what God said he would do through Jesus. But how do we know that Jesus really accomplished everything God said he would accomplish, especially with how the story ends in Luke? It's God revealing his glory to ordinary men and those ordinary men receiving extraordinary revelation and then going out and seeing with their very own eyes that God did everything he said he would the way he said he would and then going out and preaching that gospel to the world. That's how we are here right now. And at the beginning of Luke, Luke's just giving us a glimpse that that is part of the plan for how God is going to keep his promises. You look at all of this and it looks so tragic, but it's not an accident. It doesn't mean God's failed. The opposite, it's part of the plan. And you know what? Here's the thing. You've got to do something with that. You've got to do something with that. It's time for some application because this is news. It is good news that we're talking about. The past couple of weeks, we've come to church and we've heard Luke saying the salvation God is providing through Jesus is big. It's really big. This is not just go to church, be a nice person, then die and hope a couple nice people say nice things about you. The gospel reveals that God's plan is a complete reversal of the way things are and that he's going to do this through Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Bible promised. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. That's the announcement. And you have got to do something with that. You've got to respond. How? How? Luke shows us. He's given us the historical circumstances, a glimpse at least, the angelic announcement. And now Luke concludes this story in verses 18 to 20 with several responses to what God's revealed he's doing through Jesus. And the, the first is good, but not quite good enough. Verse 18, you've got the crowds, the people of Bethlehem, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. And that word wonder is more like they were amazed and it's not the normal way people respond to hearing about babies. Obviously, when you have a baby, everyone's like, oh, that's amazing. But that's not this kind of being amazed. <laughs> uh, this is something special, which is good that they're amazed. It's a start. But the problem is, it seems like they leave it at that. And obviously, we don't know for sure about every single person in Bethlehem. But we do know wondering, being amazed, being interested in what you're hearing about Jesus is not enough. It's not enough to come to church and be like, Wow, isn't this interesting how Luke puts all this together? That's amazing. Interest in Jesus doesn't save anyone. What does God want? Luke gives us a couple other responses. Look at Mary and look at the shepherds, verses 19 and 20. But what do they do? First, Mary treasures up all these things. And the word treasure literally means to exert mental effort. So it's to work hard in your mind at storing information, remembering, so you can always have it right there so you can enjoy it and use it. She treasures and she ponders all these things in her heart. In other words, she meditates on it. She thinks hard about the implications of all that. What difference does this make? And actually, this little phrase here, next week, you'll have to come back next week, but that little phrase, or maybe two weeks, uh, come back in two weeks, that's it. But you come back next week too. But <laughs> we'll get back to this in, in a couple of weeks and we're going to see that phrase is from the uh, Old Testament. But here, now, she's telling us, we're seeing in Mary, that the way we should respond is by thinking hard 
about what happened. And the shepherds, what do they do? They glorify God and praise God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. In other words, they worship. How about you? How about you? Because you know, one of the problems, honestly, with preaching this story is that it's so familiar. And I'm, I'm afraid because it's so familiar, sometimes we don't even get to the first response. Uh, that, the one that's not even adequate, but, but wonder, amazement. We miss out on the shock. We're like, of course, of course, uh, you know, like, cute little baby Jesus in the manger. But, but no, let me say this as clearly as I can. Jesus is the one the whole Bible and all of history has been getting us ready for because Jesus is the one who is going to change the world at every level. He is the ultimate solution to the fundamental problems in this world. And look at how God's doing this. He's using wicked rulers, doing wicked ruler things to accomplish his plan. Jesus is born in suffering and shame, which seems terrible, but is actually good news because it's part of God's plan for Jesus accomplishing salvation and doing the work of Messiah and being exalted as Lord. And how do we know that? Because God's spoken. He's spoken to these very ordinary men who were eyewitnesses of what happened and then went out and proclaimed the significance of that. And so what are you going to do with that? What are you doing with that? First of all, be amazed. Be amazed. Don't let this world steal the wonder of what God is doing through Jesus from you. Go back and make sure you see and that you are amazed. But listen, don't stop there. Please don't stop there. This isn't just an amazing story. This has implications. This has implications. If Jesus is the one, the whole Bible is getting us ready for. And if Jesus is the Savior who is going to change the world and solve every problem, that should make a difference in the way we live right now as a church. Think about it. Think about the implications of all this for your life. I mean, if God is changing the history of the world through Jesus, if the salvation that he's providing really is this big, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for your life right now? We talk as a family with our kids as they're growing up. What can we do for Jesus? And sometimes it's almost like this overwhelming passion. We've got to figure something out. We've got to do something. It's like those times, you know, when you just want to sell everything and be totally immersed in sacrificial ministry. And obviously, selling everything is not God's call for all of our lives and not the only way to serve Jesus, actually, or always even the best. But look, the point is, you can understand struggling with that. If, if Jesus is the solution to all the problems of the universe, having that passion, trying to figure out what it looks like makes sense. But you know what doesn't make sense? Believing all this that God says about Jesus and then just sitting there the same. That does not make sense. What can you do? I think one of the best places to start is where these shepherds did. They went back to their field, but you know how they went back? They went back worshiping. One thing knowing what you know about Jesus means is that your life should be characterized by worship. Praise God. Glorify God. Do you understand what you have as a Christian? You have hope. You have a real, solid hope 
of total salvation. You know the plan. And I know sometimes it's hard to hope in your hope because you hear this and it seems so impossible. But it must have seemed impossible to Mary at first as well. Virgin birth, uh, her child being Lord of the world. When the angels first said that, that must have seemed. But you know what? She believed. And verse 21, what happened? And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb which is Luke's big way of saying, you know what happened? What happened was just what God said was gonna happen. Church, you can count on it, believe it. Jesus is the one, the whole Bible and all history has been getting us ready for because Jesus is the one who's going to change the world at every level. Let's pray. Lord, what if the shepherds had heard this message and just stayed there looking at their sheep? That would make no sense <laughs> for them just to say, oh, that was kind of, that was kind of a nice, neat, different thing that happened this evening. Uh, Fred, the, the angel came. Wasn't that interesting? Let's, let's go put those sheep in the pen. No, Lord, they heard that announcement and they reacted. They had to do something. And we hear this announcement and I, I, this is news. You, through your word, are speaking to us. And so we ask that we would respond, and not just by being amazed, by being amazed, but by thinking hard about the difference this announcement makes for the way we live our lives. And first of all, uh, that at least like the shepherds, we would be people whose lives are characterized by worship. We pray this in Jesus, your name. Amen.